Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. A series of one-sided debates moderated by facilitating funny man Jeremy Hardy. Tonight, how to die. Thank you, good evening, and welcome to the last in this series, If You're Really Peaky. Otherwise, it's the second to last. <laughs> Joining me tonight are two people who, without me, would be relaxing at home, Pauline McGlynn. Hello. <laughs> and a newcomer to the programme, Paul B. Davis. Hello. Now, Paul, we appeared together on Radio 4 quite a while ago in Unnatural Acts and at Home with the Hardys, and yet uh, you haven't worked with me since. Uh, no, Jezza, no, I've been, I've been so busy, full on. It's been an absolute madhouse. I did leave several messages. Yes, yes, I've been meaning to get back to you about that. In 1990. <laughs> yes, well, I, I didn't get those messages because I lost my mobile in 1990. You couldn't lose a mobile in 1990. They were the size of a car. <laughs> yes, it fell in the sea. Oh, well, I'm... I'm sorry to hear that. It's OK. It's a long time ago. I'm all right now. Pauline, since you last appeared on the programme, your life must have been without meaning. You must be glad to be back. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if I didn't want to be here, I'd still be contractually obliged. Yeah, sorry I had to give, give your agent a false name. I just tend to find people say yes that way. Yeah, well, I was pretty excited. Martin Scorsese is a good name to have chosen. <laughs> Everyone's so down on identity fraud, but there's a definite upside to it. <laughs> Anywho, this programme is called How to Die. Death, as Hamlet describes it in Macbeth, Prince of Thieves, is that undiscovered country <laughs> from whose Bournemouth no traveller returns. <laughs> but let me make clear straight away that I am not speaking in favour of death, except in one respect. We all have to die, and the one positive thing about that fact is that it can make us appreciate life, because the two things are radically different. Honestly, they're like night and day. Don't be telling me dead people are at peace. That's a euphemism, like saying losing a leg is downsizing. <laughs> I hesitate to say we no longer exist after death, because something of us survives in hearts and minds. And by hearts and minds, I don't mean patrolling Basra in a beret. I mean that people who knew us... Remember us. We might make an impact to the extent that we become well-known or even iconic, which could be a comfort, but also an irritation to the people who knew as well. I sometimes feel sorry for the friends and family of Che Guevara, people who knew him before he was a T-shirt. <laughs> you can get quite possessive about people you've lost, especially if they were in the public eye. When my friend Linda Smith died, a lot of people wrote to me. Broadly speaking, I got three kinds of letters. Real ones, this is. One kind said, sorry for your loss, which I felt was appropriate since it was a letter to me. Another kind said, you're not looking well, hope you don't die too, which <laughs> was insensitive but shows concern. But some of the others were in the territory of, I personally feel so terribly sad about this awful news which is in some way about me. Although I didn't know Linda myself and have only the vaguest idea of who she was or what a radio is, I feel a real connection to her because she seems to be getting the kind of attention that I so crave. <laughs> and people who were entirely genuine kept telling me how upset they felt. And I thought, well, fair enough, but what use is that to me? It means a lot if you were close to her as well, because we feel something similar. But if you didn't know her, or you met her half a dozen times, telling me you're upset is like my telling Aung San Suu Kyi I feel quite trapped sometimes. 
I'm sure they were upset. I cried when Joe Strummer died, but I wouldn't say that to one of his close friends. Actually, I probably would. That's a terrible thing. Because everyone's feelings are genuine. They're just different. And it's not a competition. But you're angry as well as sad when you lose someone. You're angry with yourself about all the things you should have done, like putting the handbrake on and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and people can upset you without meaning to. I've had this thing since Linda died where I'm being interviewed on local radio for a gig and they'll be saying... Yeah, that was Lady in Red. This is a Christa Berg hour on Radio East Anglia with me, Darren Dean. More Christa Berg coming up, but first, I'm joined by Jeremy Hardy, who's coming to Hunt Stanton on Tuesday. Best known for his appearances on That Was The Week That Was, and I apologise, you'll have to give me a clue. But also, <laughs> Jeremy, big friend of Linda Smith. Tell us a little bit about that. And I think, well, what am I supposed to do with this now? Is this on the CV they get from the publicist? 45 years old, been on the radio, friend died. <laughs> But at least if you lose someone who's famous, people remember. When you lose someone and it's not in the papers, which is usually the case, people are sympathetic for half an hour, and then nine times out of ten they've forgotten about it completely. You're looking a bit down in the dumps. Yeah, it was the um, funeral today. Funeral? Yeah, you remember that, uh, my friend? Uh... Oh, yes, yeah. Oh, I'm getting a new kitchen. <laughs> So there's a comfort in knowing that Linda will be remembered by a lot of people for a long time. That's immortality. But I'm broadly assuming that there is no actual afterlife per se. That being the case, death has a very important part to play because it gives us something to work to. Our time is up. We must put down our pens, hopefully having left time for our conclusion. So in life, we need to recognise the things that are important. And one of those things is sleep. I'm not... I'm not one of those people who say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. No, you won't. That's like saying, I'll have a bath when I'm drowning, or... I'll be warm enough when I'm cremated. You, you won't sleep when you're dead, because you'll be dead. And sleep is one of the great pleasures in life. I don't want to die in my sleep because it's something I really enjoy, and I wouldn't want to miss any of it. I'd rather die with a sword in my hand, because I'll be thinking, Blimey! Bloody thing weighs a ton. I can't wait till this is over. <laughs> Having said that, I don't especially want to die heroically, but I would quite like to die in a way that causes maximum inconvenience to others. <laughs> On an escalator, or having my blood pressure taken. <laughs> or at somebody else's funeral. <laughs> Attention-seeking to the last. Maybe as a suicide bomber with rather weak explosives so that I don't hurt anybody else, but they just get quite messy. <laughs> now, you might say you wouldn't be joking like this if you'd lost someone in a terrorist outrage. Well, I have, and I am. And if I've made light of the 2005 suicide bombings, which I suppose I have, it's because I don't know what other contribution I can make, other than saying we need to look at the causes, which is obvious. Abandoning neoconservative foreign policy would clearly be a big help, but I seem to have failed to make that happen. So remaining chipper through adversity is about all I can offer. If we live in a state of fear of our imminent demise, as our leaders would like, we shall not only tolerate ever deeper erosions of our liberty, we shall slowly go mad. So, other than trying to change the government and show that that's a better way forward than blowing yourself up, all we can do is pick up unattended packages and give them a jolly good rattle to make sure, <laughs> make sure there's nothing untoward. One might even say that by not joking about it, we're giving the terrorists what they want. But I'm not convinced that that's a major consideration for people organising explosions. 
When the bombs went off in London on Thursday, July the 7th, 2005, people stoically insisted that not going to work the next morning would be giving the terrorists what they wanted. But I'm not sure the real aim of the bombers was to get us to take a long weekend. <laughs> I don't think they thought we were looking a bit rough and maybe working too hard. I'm not even entirely convinced they were motivated by a warped idea of Islam. The culprits seem to have come from Yorkshire, which strongly suggests these people were not driven by faith at all. They were just chippy northern bastards. <laughs> Envious of our sophisticated southern ways. <laughs> anyway, in short, killing yourself is not a good way to die, especially if you take innocent people with you. So just say no. There, that's as responsible as I can be. Right, well, let's move on from bombs and get back to death. What if you're not dying in an act of martyrdom? What if you just decide to die? Generally, most of us don't want to die, even if we say we do. I wish I was dead is a terrible thing to say, because it's I wish I were dead. <laughs> Conditional tense. I'm sorry, but someone has to uphold these standards. <laughs> Most of us are unlikely to feel ready for death unless we're really tired of our lives, we've enjoyed them so much that any more would be an anticlimax, or we've been misled about what to expect next. Being told we're going to a better place is bad for us, and potentially bad for others. Some people who believe in heaven do a tremendous amount of good, but some do tremendous harm, perhaps because they undervalue life itself. Looked at in one way, Osama bin Laden and George Bush and Tony Blair are just arsing about like kids on the last day of term. <laughs> Next week they're going to Disneyland, so they really don't care. These people give the impression of having no grasp at all of the gravity of the situation they're in. They are, at best, emotionally immature and, at worst, dangerous fanatics. But then there have been plenty of dreadful and demented atheists who've inflicted terrible harm. So perhaps the common thread is not belief in heaven, but insane self-belief and a desire for eternal fame. The significant thing that united Mao, Stalin and Pol Pot is not that they'd all read the Communist Manifesto, but the fact that a park bench inscribed, he loved this spot, was never going to be enough for them. <laughs> and it must be much easier to make a splash in this life than in the next one. If, acting on doctored intelligence reports, St. Peter decides to admit Tony Blair into heaven, and I should venture that he's by no means a shoo-in, once he's in heaven, who's Tony Blair? He'll have all of history to compete with. Alive, he's a big fish in a small pool. In Britain, in the early 21st century, everyone recognises him, he mops up all the local funding for his projects, and he's competing for approval with the likes of Jade Goody and James Blunt. <laughs> In Paradise, he'll be forced to compare himself with, among others, William Wilberforce, Joe Strummer, William Shakespeare, John Milton, Ian Jury, Tom Paine, Hattie Jakes, <laughs> Bush. George Bush, if his dad can somehow get him off the draft to hell, will swagger through the pearly gates to be shunned by Martin Luther King, Johnny Cash, Groucho Marx, Billy Holiday, Joey Ramone, Rosa Parks and Pocahontas. <laughs> Bin Laden will be met by 72 virgins, none of whom fancies men with beards. <laughs> but what about the leaders? Thatcher is a practising Christian, as was Reagan, and both were very jocular in power. Robert Mugabe is a Catholic, and they're usually funnier than Protestants because of the drink. But, <laughs> but he seems to be quite a misery guts. Balling, as a whore of Rome, why do you think... <laughs> 
Why do you think it is that so many dictators have been Catholics? They called themselves Catholics. Doesn't mean they were. They probably just wanted to get their kids into good schools. Oh, <laughs> right. Dictators generally have an ambivalent relationship with religion, often happy to kill in God's name, but also often killing a lot of people who are considerably more religious than they are. A great many Catholics have died opposing tyranny and upholding justice. And I don't think they all did it just because they thought heaven was waiting. Archbishop Oscar Romero, not long before he was murdered by a right-wing death squad in El Salvador, said, If they kill me, I will be resurrected in the Salvadorian people. He died because he was fantastically brave and was prepared to face mortal danger to champion the poor and oppressed. I doubt he died thinking, Oh goody, now I can spend eternity discussing Christ's circumcision with St Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> There's something very negative about living a life motivated by a desire for a reward in, in the form of a place in heaven, divine approval or good karma. Isn't it better to do the right thing just because it's the right thing? Paul, you're a socio-historical anthropologist. Okay. Is, uh, <laughs> is the idea of an afterlife a universal human phenomenon? Absolutely, Jeremy, thank you. Now, many religions and cultures have postulated some kind of paradise. Native Americans have looked forward to joining their ancestors in the happy hunting ground, only to find it's filling up with members of the Countryside Alliance, uh, for many of whom it's actually a second spiritual home that they only use at weekends, their primary, their primary post-mortem residence being a gated community in one of the Dockland Eternal Regeneration Projects, where Native Americans aren't allowed except as security guards and cleaners. So many of them are migrating to Valhalla, where the Vikings are happy to welcome them as warriors, but are less happy about the large numbers of gay people who've been attracted by the Viking dress code. <laughs> so, does that mean Vikings are moving out of Valhalla? Absolutely, Jeremy. Vikings are now turning up on the Hindu Wheel of Karma. What's that? It's a game show where if you win, you get to come back next week only as something else. Right. <laughs> Well, now, listeners might be asking, how does any of this help us with the question of how to die? My reply is, leave me alone, I'm thinking. <laughs> it's only by talking out loud that we find out what we think. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And, <laughs> and I think that in asking how we should die, I've mainly been asking how we should live. And what happens after we die is, to some extent, a reflection of how we've lived. When Augusto Pinochet died, there was frustration from his opponents that he had cheated justice yet again, this time without Jack Straw's help, and sadness, <laughs> sadness from his supporters, notable among whom was Margaret Thatcher, because she was a big fan of the old butcher. It was salutary to see again the footage that reminds us of Thatcher's friendship with a mass murderer, because when she goes, a national amnesia will sweep our land. Public figures will fall over themselves to mourn Lady Margaret, the people's Pinochet, and, <laughs> and people will want to put flowers somewhere. Where, though? Outside some place that would represent her achievements. Debt recovery agency? Anyway, she's going to be quite old when she goes, so it won't be any surprise, however you feel about it. This year, when we remember that it's ten years since the Princess of Wales died, it's eerie looking back at the shock caused by that young woman's death. Clearly it was a horrible thing to happen to a person, and awful for those who knew and loved her. But something else happened. Lots of people who didn't know her at all were overcome with grief. The abiding image is that of the flowers, recreated in the film The Queen, for which Dame Sir Judy Mirren won the Oscar <laughs> for Best Queen Acting. Now... <laughs> I mean, fair play, it was a very nice performance, but given that the essence of the character is emotional repression, she didn't have a lot to do. 
Not many faces. Standard regal, Balmoral regal, see above, quizzical regal, slightly offended regal, and you must be ordinary people regal. <laughs> she didn't have to do, whoa, I'm the dictator of Uganda. How weird is that? <laughs> now, Pauline, you could do the Queen, couldn't you? I can't, Jeremy, no. I'm a Catholic. It's the law of succession. Oh, well, what, what acting can Catholics do? Oh, loads. Um, shame we can do, self-loathing, self-disgust, recrimination. Oh, and here's one. Oh, I like that. Come hither, sexy winking. It was not. It was blind eye to child abuse. Ah. <laughs> oh, Pauline, while I've got you, what's the Irish Catholic attitude to death? Oh, we live for death. Very big on the whole thing. Wakes, open coffins. What's that about, the open coffin thing? Keeps the flies off the sausage rolls. <laughs> Plus, we don't shy away from death like you Protestants. What's a Protestant funeral like in Ireland? Miserable. You wouldn't get a sandwich. We know how to commemorate people. Now, my granny's funeral was fantastic. The whole town turned out. Everyone came to the house. Shots were fired over the coffin. Was she in the IRA? No, a vulture had escaped from Dublin Zoo. <laughs> Point is, the magnitude of the event is expressed. I'd hate to be buried here. The English are really odd about death. You think? Yes. Like, you get hysterical about a princess you never met, but if anything happens close to home, you behave as though it's an unfortunate interruption. Godzilla could gatecrash your wedding and crush your bride with his claws, and you'd say, oh, well, if it hadn't been that, something else would have got her. Meteorite striking the earth, lunatic with a chainsaw. <laughs> Well, we haven't learned how to do genuine grief. We do projected grief. Now, Paul, as well as being our religious affairs and snooker correspondent, <laughs> you also hold a doctorate in impressive brain stuff from McKeith University, Snakebite, Illinois. That's right, Jezza. Now, conventional psychiatrists would say that Diana's death was a catalyst that triggered the release of repressed feelings. But what we learn from studying neurorectal phrenology is that poor digestion is the root of spiritual blockage. Really? Well, you can't disprove it. But this explains why there's always been this search for the fundamental seat of the emotions. And it turns out that the ancients were absolutely right, because they are actually located in the seat or fundament. Are we talking about plops? Let's not, let's not get hung up on medical jargon, Jeremy. I'm talking about our souls. That's what I mean. No, Jeremy. Spirits. You see, basically, we have two chakras, Chakra Khan and Chakra Berry. These chakras... And these chakras are linked to the body by a form of energy. Ah, energy. So we're not talking about fecal matter, but emotion. Exactly. Emotion has built up and needs to be released. Okay. <laughs> but this can be a painful process. The death of someone famous is harder for us to digest, which is why their passing brings tears to your eyes. Right. Any more to be got out of this extended metaphor? No, I think we've just about squeezed out every last little bit. Well, actually, I think it's also easier to mourn the famous because we tend to think of the person alive, and it's easier to do that if they were on telly a lot. And we equate fame with achievement, which is something we're very big on. We comfort ourselves by thinking, it's a shame someone's died, but at least they got a lot done.
It's getting out of hand, in fact, this focus on achievement. The modern funeral seems to have become a live obituary. I don't know when funerals started to get so target-based, but these days you have to supply the priest or the rabbi or the humanist with a supporting statement. <laughs> we can't pass to the other side without an up-to-date CV, which is rather hard on people who were a bit rubbish or never really got it together. And so we mourn the loss of Kevin, who was... Well-meaning, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. <laughs> I suppose we do all the credits in death because we should have done them before. The fact that a person achieved a lot is supposed to be uplifting. Increasingly, people reacting to death have tried to move away from traditional lamentation and towards celebration. But I think we're running before we can walk. We haven't got the hang of grief and already we're trying festivity. People say... I don't want sadness at my funeral. I want laughter and poetry and song. Bugger that. I want people's lives torn apart when I go. <laughs> I want everyone I know thrown on the funeral pyre with me. In fact, I'm putting that in my will so I can cancel my life insurance. But, Paul, as a pathozoologist, mm -hmm. what, do you make of, what do you make of our ritualising around death? Well, Jeremy, as humans, we are probably the only species who set aside a specific location for mourning the remains of the dead in a special ceremony. Now, they do say that elephants do it as well, but I've been to loads of funerals and I've never seen a single elephant. No, they don't care about us. As long as they get their bun and a hose down, they're quite happy, thank you. <laughs> For myself, I've decided I definitely don't want a left-wing funeral because someone will inevitably quote Joe Hill, an anarcho-syndicalist Labour leader who, faced with execution, famously exhorted his supporters with words now paraphrased as don't mourn, organise. Someone will always say at a radical funeral in the words of Joe Hill, don't mourn, organise. But he meant organise a general strike, not a flipping finger buffet. No. <laughs> No, Jeremy, you're wrong. A finger buffet is perfect because you can't hold a plate and eat from it while you're holding a glass. Pauline, you claim to be concerned with commemoration of the life that's passed, but you're fixated by the catering. It's what they would have wanted. No, it's not. <laughs> Death is not ameliorated by satay sticks. Now, I know we're supposed to celebrate the life that's passed, but we're forgetting the collective mourning experience, which is one thing religions do really well, especially Christianity, which is very death-oriented. I mean, all Christianity, even the C of E, is about death. Well, it's about tombolas, giant thermometers and death. <laughs> Priests and vicars adopt a suitably morbid tone at funerals. Some do their homework, some just make a brave stab at getting the name right. But they all sound quite mopey, which is what you want, really. Humanist celebrants, I have to say, err on the jovial side. Partly, perhaps, because they're a bit pleased with themselves now they've figured out there's no God. In fact, they're quite evangelical about it. They're Jehovah's I never saw nothings. <laughs> Whereas clerics have to do funerals, humanists are volunteers, which must mean they fancy themselves a bit. You know, I've been thinking of something to do with my spare time. Oh, yeah, yeah. OK, get this. You know how when someone dies, the people who love them are devastated? Yes, yes. They're confused, they're angry, they feel a terrible sense of loss. They don't think life will ever be the same again until I show up. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, well, what do you do? Cheer them up. Have you ever cheered anybody up before? No, that's the point. That's why I really want to do this. Well, well what are you going to say? I don't know. I'll think of something. What, something positive? Oh, positive. That's good. Here, let me get my pen. <laughs> 
Now, I know they're good people trying to help, but they're bound to be intrusive because they're just not as upset as everybody else. It's horrible when someone dies. And because we haven't worked out how to grieve, we haven't worked out how to heal. And we're not very good at checking how other people are doing. Children, for example. Children are expected to deal with everything that's thrown at them. Children are amazingly resilient, we say, because it's easier than imagining what they might be going through. Whose idea was it to make children write and read poems at funerals? Aside from the fact that children's poems are dreadful and they have no idea how to perform them. <laughs> the poor lad's already got a lot on his plate. Grandma's dead, isn't that enough? And it's only six months since he lost his hamster, who, by the way, got a much sought-after plot in the back garden. Unlike Grandma, who's about to be roasted and ground like a Winsiette-clad coffee bean at the municipal dump for the dead. The boy's had two bereavements in six months. He's lost two important figures in his life, and at least one of them gave him toffees. So spend some time with him and make sure he's okay. Don't make him perform doggerel beneath the stern gaze of the souls of the elders. But the trouble is, we don't know what we're supposed to do after death. Often we're not really coping, just busying ourselves with administrative tasks, and there isn't really any way of registering the fact that we're just not happy about what's happened. Even if no one else is to blame, we're still opposed to it. Maybe instead of thanking the vicar, we should present him with a petition, calling on God to reverse his decision. But we can't because it would upset the old people. So we go back to emptying the freezer and trying to convince Lambeth that the dead don't pay council tax. <laughs> But I'm forgetting about our own responsibility as people who are going to die. Perhaps when we express our wishes about how our passing should be marked, we should try to make it as bearable as possible for the bereaved. Maybe by asking for something other than angels to be played, knowing our loved ones will already be in hell, even if we've somehow escaped it. <laughs> But who knows how to plan their own memorial? I suppose if you work in public relations, you've got the skills to design the perfect funeral for yourself, but then no one will go to it anyway. <laughs> and, and there's the problem. The only way of not leaving pain behind us is to bring no one any happiness in the course of our lives. The more grateful people are that we've lived, the more harrowing is our death. And that's about being loved. Not about how many languages we spoke or whether we could ski. Do you want to be on your deathbed telling the assembled throng, I'm just so glad I've led such a rich and full life. And have them thinking, Yeah, well done you. Cheers then. <laughs> but in fact, almost everyone is mourned by someone. There's no way round it. You die, you hurt people. So take care of yourself and take care of others. If you have to do something dangerous, fine. Just make sure it's important. One day you might have to run into a burning building to save someone's life. And you won't be able to do that if you've already lost yours, falling off a mountain that you only climbed because you have difficulty forming meaningful relationships. <laughs> In short, love life. Because after this, there's only the archers. Good night. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy's Speech to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy, with additional material by Paul B. Davis. It also starred Paulie McFinn and Paul B. Davis. The producer was David B. Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBBC.